0: I'll start that off with a, a quote from my dad that I'll never, I'll never forget. When I told him I wanted to climb Everest after going through two cancers, he literally looked at me and said, we didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a hunk of rock and ice. <laughs> Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement,
1: personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote today is from William Arthur Ward, And it is, adversity causes some men to break, others to break records. I can't think of a more fitting quote for our guest today, Sean Swarmer. Sean has uh, overcome more adversity and accomplished more than most people on Earth. He's a two-time terminal cancer survivor who's climbed the highest mountain of all seven continents. He's been to the North and South Pole and is the author of Keep Climbing. He's also the subject of the recent documentary, True North, the Sean Swarner story. Sean, welcome. It's so great to have you on the Elevate podcast.
0: I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. And I think you're absolutely right. It, it breaks some people and it, maybe, it, maybe it'll bend them to snap back on <laughs> others.
1: <laughs> so, you know, your, your story is so incredible that I, I don't know where to start. I, I guess we should start a little bit at the beginning to catch everyone up who have not heard about it at all. Can you tell me a bit about the first time you were diagnosed with cancer?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, it goes back to, uh, when I was in the, uh, the eighth grade, so I was 13. And, uh, interestingly enough, I was playing basketball in eighth grade and in, into the gym and I came down and, and my knee ended up snapping. Like I, I heard this audible tear, almost like when, uh, you know, you're eating Thanksgiving dinner and, and you can hear the, uh, the gristle pulling away from the bone. That's kind of what it sounded like without getting too descriptive. But I hobbled over to the, uh, the little theater area and kind of sat down and hobbled throughout the rest of the day. But when I went home, uh, my knee, you know, I was a skinny kid too. Went, my knee was the size of, of a grapefruit, if not bigger. And mom instantly thought something was wrong. So, they wanted to take me to the doctor. The doctor uh, stuck me in a, uh, an x-ray machines, like theres you know, there's nothing wrong in there. It's just uh, maybe a strain or something. And eventually, a, a day, maybe a day later, my entire body swelled up. So, every joint, you know it started with my knee but every joint ended up swelling up so much that uh, my mom and dad couldn't even recognize uh, their first born son so they stuck me in uh, the local hospital willard willard ohio where i mean the population is like 5000 people and they started treating me for pneumonia which uh, you know you're not you're not going to be curing cancer by sucking on a nebulizer so i, I wasn't getting any better took me to Columbus, Ohio, and started doing a bunch of tests, and as a 13-year-old, they ended up telling my parents, hey, your, your son has uh, advanced stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma, and uh, the prognosis is only about uh, three months. So, they told my parents, hey, your, your firstborn son's going to be dead in three months. And so, what happened next? Well, what happened next was, uh, you know, went through a number of treatments and they started doing a bone marrow test, to, which when they take these surgical blades, basically these surgical needles just above my, my butt and they went into the bone there to pull out some of the, uh, the marrow and, and they, they decided I didn't have it in my, my marrow, which is, you know, thankfully I, I didn't have it there. Went through a number of, of chemo treatments. My whole diet was out of whack. They, they put me in all-you-could-eat diet. I remember, you know, I, I think at the time I loved it because I was eating uh, 9 or 10 pancakes, a dozen eggs for breakfast, you know, a protein shake here, there, bacon, bread, you, you name it. But the bad thing was I gained about 60 or 70 pounds. But again, you know, about a year after uh, I started the treatment, thanks to the miracle of modern medicine, family support, prayer, and just an inner will to, to not give up, you know, I, I walked out of the hospital a, a hairless, happy, bloated young man. So, I have a couple questions on that. When they told, I
1: assume they told your parents that you had three months to live. I mean, did they tell, did you know that? What What did your parents tell you? And or, so was the treatment designed to try to cure the cancer or given that diagnosis, was it just supposed to provide comfort?
0: Great question. It was designed to actually cure the cancer. They didn't tell me. In fact, my, uh, my step-grandmother, not blood-related, passed away recently um, before I got diagnosed. And the uh, the doctors and my, my parents didn't want me to associate the C word, you know, at the time, cancer, with a death sentence. So, they just told me that I was sick. And, you know, any, any teenager is going to be nosy and, and curious. So, I went to the hospital library and did some research and found that Hodgkin's lymphoma meant cancer. Uh, and they, they didn't tell me that I only had three months to live. I think You know, looking at it from that perspective, I think if you tell someone, hey, you only have three months to live, you know, they're they're learning that from a professional at the time. And I think that that would have planted the seed, hey, I'm on my deathbed, you know, my God, what what am I going to do? But they told my parents that and and my parents kept that for me until later. But again, like I said, after uh, about a year of, of treatment and a year of changing my diet because I was after being on that uh, all-you-could-eat diet, doctors were like, okay, you're in remission now, uh, you know, start eating broccoli, you know, and eat egg whites and <laughs> start eating healthy again. And I went on a crash diet again and, and went back to being a quote-unquote if there has, is anything as a normal teenager. But I, I tried to be as normal as possible after going back in remission because that's all I wanted to do. You know, my friends were uh, worried about trivial things in my mind. A word about being popular, you know, the latest shoe styles, whatever it might be. I was literally fighting for my life because there were nights I went to bed not knowing if I was going to wake up the next morning.
1: And how did you get yourself through that as a 13 year old? Like, do you remember kind of what your thoughts were, what your coping mechanism? I I mean, you're a very optimistic
0: (laughs) guy now, but, but I mean, were you always that way? You know, I, I think human beings are are a representation of repetition and whatever you constantly do every day kind of defines who you are. And if you're constantly looking for the negative in things, that's exactly what you're going to find. So, with the treatments, one thing I decided was I wasn't going to be focused on not dying. I was focused on living. You know, I I slowly changed how I looked at life and I didn't want to avoid the negative parts. I wanted to be attracted to the positive aspects of it and I think I, another aspect that I really had was a sense of humor. And, and I didn't take life, and I still don't. I don't take life too seriously because, I mean, you never know when your time's up. So, enjoy every moment you have. You know, one, one particular tool that I used, and I, I still do, I'm a huge believer in the mind-body connection. And I, I did it when I was, because I was an athlete even before I uh, was diagnosed with the first cancer. And I always visualized myself completing the race. You know, I was a huge swimmer. And I would visualize myself stroke for stroke in touching the wall, looking up at the clock and seeing the time that I wanted and, and going backwards and seeing the, you know, coming out winning. And I did the same thing with this, but I, I kind of visualize myself inside my body in a microscopic spaceship flying around, destroying the cancer with, with these missiles and, and bombs and stuff that were laden with chemotherapy. <laughs>
1: That is an awesome story, you know, and I'm sure you've heard, it reminds me of the Michael Phelps, you know, also visualized all his races and his timing and his strokes. And 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 when he won that gold medal, when his goggles came off in the Olympics, it was because he had visualized the whole thing and and, and sort of knew it all. It's an amazing story. I, I, I've i heard people say similar things. So unfortunately, though, you're clean, you're a year later in remission, but that wasn't the end of your cancer story. So what what happened a few years later?
0: Yeah, I guess being a, a normal kid only lasted for about a year. I was in remission for only a year when I was going in for a checkup for the first one. I guess I'm, I'm an overachiever. They, they found a second cancer, and, and they actually diagnosed it completely separately from the Hodgkin. So, it was a second primary tumor, completely unrelated to the first one, and it was called Askin sarcoma, which has a prognosis of roughly 6%. So, if you have 100 people with this illness, because of the uh, the prognosis they gave me, you know, 94 people would pass away. And it's so rare that only one out of, uh, three out of every million people get this disease. And lucky me, I'm the only person in the world who's ever had both of these. So, the doctors Uh didn't even know what to do. And, And this time, I was 16 years old, and the doctors told my parents that I had a prognosis of only 14 days. So, I now had an expiration date.
1: And did you know this time now you're a year later? So, how did your parents communicate that the second time?
0: So, I, I remember laying in the hospital bed um, because in, in one day, they found a tumor and an x-ray. They did a needle biopsy. They took out a lymph node. They put in a Hickman catheter, which is like a uh, permanent IV. They cracked open my ribs. They took out the tumor. They put in a drainage tube and started chemotherapy in less than 24 hours. So, it was that devastating. But I remember after they did the, uh, the needle biopsy, I was in the recovery room. And I was going over to – well, the doctor came into the room, pulled mom and dad out in the hallway. And again, you know, being nosy, I, I kind of grabbed my, uh, my little buddy, which was I called my IV pole at the time, grabbed my little buddy and waddled over to the doorway. And I just listened to the doctor converse with my mom and my dad. And my mom cut right to the chase and she asked him directly, is, is it cancer again? And the doctor said, I'm, I'm sorry, Terry, it is. So I, I didn't need to hear anymore. You know, I, I went back to the hospital bed and put my face in the, the pillow and, and just balled my eyeballs out. So I heard that it was cancer the second time. I didn't want to know the prognosis. I didn't want to know what type of cancer it was until later. But you know, I mean they they told my parents, hey, your 16-year-old it only has 14 days to live.
2: Yeah. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate.
1: So you started treatment again. What was the goal of the treatment in telling you that you had 14 days to live?
0: Well, the goal of treatment was to get to that 15th day, you yeah. know, and then the 16th day and then the 17th day. And I went through uh, roughly three months of, of intense chemo. And every time I was in the hospital, the doctors put me in a medically induced coma. So, my, my cycle was, say, I would go in the hospital Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That would be half of the cycle. And then my, I'd be released from the hospital to uh, increase my blood cell count so that my body would, would get stronger and strong enough to handle another onslaught of, of that chemical cocktail. Then I go back in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. That would be one cycle. And then every time I was in the hospital for those treatments, the doctors put me in medically induced coma. So I was there for three months. I was lucid for one month where they're doing the radiation therapy, no chemotherapy. And then I go back in for 10 more months. So aside from that one month of of radiation therapy, I don't even remember being 16. Yeah.
1: And and as part of that radiation, you ended up losing use of one of your lungs, Correct.
0: Exactly. So, yeah, it's kind of funny. So, when, whenever you're breathing or whenever anybody breathes, I have to breathe twice to make up for it. I only have one fully functioning lung. The, the radiation destroyed so much in my right lung. There's so much scar tissue, there's really no oxygen transfer.
1: But we're talking here today. So, um, <laughs> you, you, you clearly made it beyond on 15 days. So, wh- how did that play out and when were you cleared from the second time around?
0: So essentially, a little over a year, we'll say 14 months, I was placed back in remission. And then the doctor said, okay, you can go ahead and live your life again. And, you know, at that point, it's kind of weird. And, and looking back at it, I was 13 years old the first time, 16 years old the second time, uh, first cancer, second cancer, remission from the first one, remission from the second one. Going to bed, like I said earlier, not knowing if I was going to wake up the next morning. The hardest part for me, I think, was. Everybody was excited for me when, Hey, Sean's in remission. That's fantastic. He has the rest of his life. My doctors were happy. My mom and dad were happy. My family was happy. My friends were happy. Everyone was excited. But me, I'm like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do now? Yeah. I didn't know because I didn't think of, of a potential future. So, my mind was wrapped around this concept of, Hey, today is the only thing I have.
1: And how did battling cancer as a teenager affect your relationship with both family and friends?
0: You know, just like anyone who's going through anything traumatic, uh, you know, it could be a financial hardship, it could be a illness, it could be cancer, whatever. You really learn who your true friends are very quickly. And then you also find out that, you know, some friends disappear and then some come out of the woodwork. You know, you didn't even know we're there. So I think it, it brought my family closer together in the long run, I know it brought my brother and I closer together, but sometimes we'll go out and as adults now, he has two kids, we'll go out and have a couple of drinks and, you know, kind of hug each other. And I'll just, you know, kind of choke back the tears and say, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry for taking you through what I took you through. But he'll, he'll be like, it's not your fault. You know, I'm sorry too. So it definitely left an emotional scar that, that I'm going to have for the rest of my life. But I, I look back at it and I think that it was a good thing too. It was the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but also one of the best things that's ever happened to me.
1: Well, Sean, it would be really, it had been really easy to be a victim um, in this case, and no one, no one would have blamed you, but you decided to take on a, a different path, which was getting into endurance sports. And I think as your first challenge for this, right, you chose to climb Mount Everest uh, as the start of your <laughs> adventuring career. Take us back to that a little bit. And I particularly would love to hear the reaction of, of others, like when you told them this is what you're going to do.
0: Oh, I'll, I'll, will Of course, I'll start that off with a, a quote from my dad that'll never, I'll never forget. When I told him I wanted to climb Everest after going through two cancers, he literally looked at me and said, "We didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a hunk of rock and ice." <laughs> so, how old were you? I think I was twenty six or twenty seven because I summoned when I was twenty seven or twenty eight. I think, and I, he's absolutely right, but. I went through college, you know, I turned into Belushi from Animal House in, in school. I, I was reliving my, my high school years that were taken from me. And I was studying to be a psychologist for cancer patients when I realized that my whole life I've been ignoring the whole cancer aspect because it, it helped define who I was. It definitely didn't, hey, it, it doesn't say Sean Swanner is cancer. Cancer is Sean Swanner, no, but it helped define who I am. And I looked back at it and I realized that, you know, I had a choice on how I wanted to see what was happening to me and how I wanted to take that. So, you're you're absolutely right that, you know, I, I wanted to use what I've been through to help others and I, I realized that going through those two cancers really taught me a lot about life, you know, what's truly valuable and, you know, if if you want to feel wealthy, take away everything money can buy and look at what you have left, you know, your friends, your health, whatever that might be and I also realized that I understand what true pain really is and what fighting really is like and I I did some research and I wanted to use the highest platform in the world to literally scream hope and give something back to people to help them believe in themselves and I, I think the human body can it needs to have hope to survive so I figured if a guy who was once given three months to live 14 days to live who was in a coma for a year of his life was read his last rites and only has one functioning lung and my god if he can climb the highest mountain in the world you can do anything so how long was your training for that? And, and
1: what did you, I assume your doctors weren't thrilled <laughs> about you going
0: with one lung. So how did that whole process look? When I was in school, my brother came with me. We moved from Florida to Colorado. Main reason being, I don't know too many mountaineers who've climbed Everest who live in the state of Florida. Yeah. Because uh, I think the highest point there is, believe it or not, is the uh, the top of the Four Seasons Hotel in Miami. <laughs> so, I moved out to Colorado uh, to Estes Park. And I literally started doing something every single day because I understood that to train for something like that, just like training for, you know, swimming, running, uh, whatever it might be, you can't cram for it and you can't just all of a sudden say, hey, I'm leaving tomorrow, so I'm going to go out and climb a couple of mountains today. You know, I understood that um, consistency was more important than intensity, so I did something every single day training my body. And the biggest thing was I, I took, a, eventually worked up to this. I took a uh, backpack with about a hundred pounds of rocks and went up and down Long's Peak, which is 18 miles round trip, 14,256 feet. I did that roughly once a week to train. Wow. And normally people train for years to make this happen, but I only had, I, I gave myself uh, nine months. Wow. So you did that every day. How, what was the mileage again? I, I did that once a week. If I said oh, every day, sorry about oh, that. Okay. No, yeah. Right. yeah well,
1: <laughs> okay. <once a week. laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I was like, I'm starting to do the math. I'm like, wow, you would have been ready quickly.
0: Yeah. Right. No, it's something, I did something every day, you know, it could be running, it could be hiking, it could be climbing, it could be whatever. And and so you made it on your first attempt, right? I did, you know, the heavens opened up and it was beautiful. The uh, The clouds parted the, uh, the, there was a slight breeze. Up top and it's that's just unheard of because you know Everest is at an altitude where jumble jets level off and, and fly. Yeah. What is the altitude? What is the top?
1: Twenty-nine thousand thirty-five feet. Wow. Yes, no joke. So what was what was the greatest either anticipated or unanticipated challenge you faced climbing Everest?
0: You know, the greatest unanticipated challenge which turned out to be the greatest challenge period, was I was at camp three on the side of, the, and, there, and there, there are only four camps. So from the fourth camp, you head up to the summit. At camp three, we were supposed to wake up the next morning and go from there to camp four, rest that evening and then climb through the night and summit the next day. But we were at camp three, right about 23,000 feet on the side of what's called the Lhotse Ice Face, which is a sheet of bulletproof ice that is at a 45 degree angle that goes on for a mile. So, literally, one wrong step, half an inch in one in, in one direction or the other, you're going to tumble a mile down and die. So, yeah. we were up here and I actually started suffering what's called HACE, high altitude cerebral edema, which is altitude-induced swelling in the brain. And I remember going to bed one night and, you know, I ate those um, like freeze-dried beef stew basically. So, chunks of beef, you know, the cubed carrots, the, the green peas and those spiral noodles and I, I chowed down because I was hungry. And... went to bed and about 10 hours later woke up and I vomited and I I could still see the spiral noodles, the green peas, the cubed carrots, everything was still intact, which meant that my body was just, my stomach was not working at all. It was, wasn't functioning. It was shutting down and it was shutting down because my brain was swelling because of the altitude. So I I stayed there on oxygen for that night, missing the time that we were supposed to go up to camp four, slept on oxygen the night after that, woke up the day after and, I was 100% better and it, it was actually unbelievable because if I would not have had that, I wouldn't have made the summit. Everybody else who was on the same time schedule as us going up from camp three to camp four. They left when I physically couldn't and they made it to camp four. They, they pushed up to the summit. Weather came in, bad weather came in, forced them off the mountain. So if I wouldn't have had this altitude induced um, swelling in the brain, I would not have made the summit. So it was a blessing in disguise actually.
1: You, you find the positive in everything.
0: Yeah, you have to.
1: Yeah. It's easier said than done, but you've, you've earned the right to say it and do it. So you climbed Everest. How did you top that? What did you do next?
0: <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I kind of started at the top. I figured the rest would be downhill. So after I uh, came home from climbing Everest, I wanted to reach around the world and, and do something called the Seven Summits, which is the highest mountain on every continent. Figured you know I may as well start with the big one and then continue climbing and reach the highest peak on uh, all seven continents on on the earth. So I, I did that and then for uh, I guess good measure, completed the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon, which is a the World Championship Ironman Distance in Triathlon in, in Hawaii. Uh, it's a two and a, basically a two and a half mile ocean swim, 112 mile bike ride, and you finish with a marathon. So compared to everything else, I actually had I had a blast. I thought it was it wasn't easy, <laughs> but I had I had fun doing it. But then for good measure, there's something called the uh, the Explorer's Grand Slam, um, which personally, I, I think it sounds like a Denny's breakfast platter, but I, I didn't yeah. name it. It's the seven summits, so like I said, the highest mountain on every continent, but also skiing to the south and north poles. And I just completed that a uh, year and a half ago. Yeah, and on your trip to the north pole, you brought a flag.
1: Uh, you put together a flag of other people who'd been affected by cancer, and it was a big endeavor, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to do that and the impact that it made?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, that, that is my why. You know, that is why I'm yeah. doing everything I'm doing. So starting with Everest, I actually took a flag up and I had it folded up in my chest pocket. Every day I climbed up the mountain, every time I moved around camp, it was always with me. And it was a constant reminder of why I was on the mountain, why I'm doing what I'm doing. It was a flag. Uh, the first one, like I said, going up Everest was probably about two feet by a foot and a half. And it had names of people touched by cancer, whether in memory of someone, uh, whether someone was going through treatment or someone who was in remission. And I left that on the, on the top of the mountain. I did the same thing on the highest mountain on every continent. It's like an homage for everyone who's been touched by cancer. Yeah. And it's physical proof that, hey, you know, we're all in this together. You know, one big family fighting this disease. And I did the same thing with the South Pole, everything. And, and it was culminated uh, at the North Pole where it was embroidered, actually it was printed um, with the word hope. And there were literally thousands and thousands of people touched by cancer on this flag. It was six feet by four feet, six and a half feet by four feet maybe. Yeah, And it was just it, at the bottom on a, every flag, it always said, dedicated to all those affected by cancer
2: in this small world, keep climbing. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year, I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Yeah, and to all the listeners, we'll put links to the True North, the documentary story, but you can see this and see Sean's work leading up to it, and it's pretty incredible. So, Sean, how have you trained to overcome the physical damage that cancers caused to your body?
0: You know, I, I think a lot of it is mental. You know, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're sensing that underlying tone where I'm, I'm picking out the positive aspects and I, I choose the perspective that I want. Yeah. When I'm approached with an opportunity, um, first of all, I, I, I don't see anything as a challenge or an obstacle. I see it as an opportunity. It's like an opportunity to grow or, or learn something new. And whenever I'm approached with an opportunity like that, I always look for the, the, the positive aspects of it. And I always try to see you know, how I can use it to help others and how I can push myself a little bit more. But whenever something new comes up, I, I firmly believe whether you think you can or you can't, you're absolutely right. right. And so many people are not in tune with their core values and, and they don't pay attention to that internal dialogue that we all have throughout the day. Because you have thousands of opportunities every day to catch yourself being negative to your, I guess, yourself.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I've noticed in my own experience that many people with low resilience tend to overstate the effect of their environment rather than focusing on what they control. I'm curious, what's your experience and perspective on that with people you have met or people even probably who look at you and say, well, you could do that, but I couldn't do that. I mean, my, my situation yeah. is so much worse, which I couldn't even imagine them saying, but I'm, I'm sure you've, you've seen this, right? I did, I did folks who, you know, again, what they control or kind of what the universe is doing to them.
0: Everybody's entitled to their own opinions, and and I don't think there's any judgment. But I think that everyone can do a little better. And I think it's because one of the things I learned at such a young age, and I think my parents instilled this in me when I was going through the swimming, I never had to be the best, but I had to be my best. So if I was swimming, say, a 50 breaststroke and my time was a 30 seconds, my goal was to go under 30. And then to beat that, that way, I was never comparing myself to anybody else. I was comparing myself to myself because as soon as you start living other people's dreams and goals, you lose focus of yours. And that's when people start to get negative. They think, oh, I can't do that. I need to do this. I need to do that. No, you don't need to do anything. You, you should want to do what you want to do. You know, and I've seen so many people who in their lives, like you said, you know, I, I could never do that. And that's that internal dialogue. And that's a core thought process that they have when something happens to them and it boils down to those core values i mentioned earlier if people can tap into their internal dialogue and listen to how they're talking to themselves they can change their entire perspective on their their own world you know we all look at the world from uh, through a different set of lenses and no one's going to have the perspective that I have no one's going to have the perspective that you have no one's going to have the perspective that each individual in the world has even twins see the world differently but it's based on how you choose to see things and you know going through my life why would I want to be negative why would I want to look at the bad things in life you know you can choose to live a good life or a bad life a positive life or a negative life and like I said earlier I don't want to be motivated by the avoidance of something I want to be motivated by something positive
1: well said. Well, you know, one thing that's interesting is so Alex Hutchinson, uh, who I had on last year, who wrote the book *Endure*. I'm not sure if you've you've read it, but it's right up your alley. Sort of the science of of endurance. You know, when we we're talking about a resilience, and I'm curious from your perspective, how much of resilience do you think is mental versus physical? Which, which is the chicken, and and which is the egg? <laughs>
0: I, I think it's mental on the, on the aspect of, you know, you can convince your body to do more. And I think that a perfect example is, is running a marathon, you know, or, or, or running a 5K, if, if that's the first thing you've ever done, three miles. If you want to run around your block, if you're running there and you're saying, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop, you're going to stop because you're telling yourself not to do something. But if you're running that around the block for the first time and you're telling yourself, keep going, keep going, keep going, you're encouraged by that. So I think that that mental prowess comes and that endurance comes from your own brain. And I think people can work on that because they can also encourage themselves. They can be their their biggest supporter. And and with anything like that, you know, you can focus on the end result, picture it in your mind as clearly as you possibly can. And you know the work that you have to go through in those difficult times that you're trying to push yourself through are 100% worth it. You know, whatever people are focused on is what they're going to get. Absolutely. And, you know,
1: you mentioned before your core values. Uh, I'm curious. Can you share those? Do you mind sharing those with everyone?
0: You know, I, I don't know like, off the top of my head exactly what a list of core values, but obviously, you know, love, respect, um, giving, success, you know, things like that are definitely high up on on my value list. And yeah, I guess that's it. You know, I don't have a, a specific list of them, but... I, I think what I do that's a little bit different than most people is I, I wake up every morning and I tell myself, no matter what happens today, today's the best day ever. Yeah. You know, and, and I, that's one of my affirmations because I want to take advantage of every single day I've been given. And when the alarm goes off, boing, I'm up out of bed, you know, and I'm, I'm making some matcha tea or some coffee with no sugar, you know, no cream, no nothing. I, I have a set pattern that I work myself through and I constantly do something that's positive. Yes, the negative shit happens all the time. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but it happens all the time. Yeah. You know, but it, you can choose to focus on what you want to focus on. You can choose to have that bring you down or you can see it as an opportunity to strengthen yourself.
1: Absolutely. Now you've got a new initiative where you're bringing a lot of your experience in creating challenges and adversity and resilience for companies and leadership teams. Can you talk and and families as well? Can you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you're working on where you're helping people to, you know, experience some of the things that you've experienced uh, from uh, your endurance sports?
0: Oh, for sure. Every year I take a group up Kilimanjaro as a fundraiser for a, a nonprofit called the Cancer Climber Association. And this year will be my sixteenth time up Kilimanjaro, which is the highest mountain in Africa. And I, I have always thought, you know, people come off this mountain changed. They see their own potential. They're they're doing something that is just astronomically high. It's almost nineteen and a half thousand feet. Yeah. So I saw how that journey changed people, and I also recently became a, a certified professional coach. And I thought, okay, well. How can I use something like this to do something I'm tagging uh, adventure immersion coaching where I'm taking people out of their comfort zone, putting them into a situation such as Kilimanjaro and helping them and coaching them in the moment. So, it's exponentially more effective as opposed to having a phone call once a week saying, what happened last week? Oh, I forget. Yep. You know, No, in the moment, right then and there, I'm asking them, how do you feel about this? What's going on? You know, How, how can you get over this? What's your perspective? Where are you looking? Everything. And then I'm also putting together a number of um, corporate programs and I'm working on one right now. I, I can't give away the, uh, the big pharmaceutical name, but they're working on it. And it's basically helping people reprogram their brains one day at a time. It's, it's not rocket science. You know, it's not brain surgery. It's just repeat, repeat, repeat. Do something new, change it to what you want it to be, and then do it over and over and over and over again until it becomes a set, a new set pattern and you get comfortable with your new normal. Now, you said the Kilimanjaro trips are families, right? Anybody can go. So initially, like I said, it was a a fundraiser for the cancer charity. And what we do is we actually pay for a cancer survivor's trip once a year. So whatever we raise this year goes to a survivor's trip next year. But we are putting together these uh, adventure immersion coaching programs uh, for anybody who wants to go. And anybody can join the trip. You know, I think we're doing it uh, the end of July, early August. So there's still time to come on board. And, and we'll make sure to provide um, links
1: and, and get all the information from you if people are interested. But can you give me, uh, without you know, who it was, but an example anecdote of either you know, the relationship between two people or some, someone you saw really change after, after doing something like that? Because I, I, I think people don't appreciate how much when, you, when your body does something it doesn't <laughs> think it can do, that it, that it changes your psyche. So I wonder if you have a story you could, you could share about your Kilimanjaro hikes.
0: I do. And I'm actually in my office right now looking for a letter that one of the families sent to me. I should have it. I should have it framed because it was, I read it and it made me tear up telling me how, you know, it affected his son in such a way that he went over there he had some post-traumatic disorders, and he came back. He was super strong. He was confident. It absolutely changed his life and the respect that we gave the, the locals over there. And we didn't treat them like uh, they were employees. We treated them like family. Um, another one was a, a cancer survivor who just went over last year. And he said he came back and, and it completely changed his life too. He was unsure of where he wanted to go in his life and what he wanted to do. He came back, he got a job, he's uh, now working in construction and he's doing some amazing things. And people who, who go on these trips, it literally makes you see things from a different perspective. You look at yourself in the mirror differently and you have this internal courage that you didn't have before. It, it's unbelievable. That's
1: amazing. And I, I, I'm going to go with you. I'm just going to have to figure out the time to do so. It's, one, it's once
0: a year. It's two weeks, right? Exactly. Yeah. We do a six-day hike and a five-day safari. So, uh, you go up and you spend all this energy and all this uh, time and, and you motivate yourself to get to the literally the roof of Africa. And then we go celebrate with a safari through the Serengeti, the Ngorongoro crater, Lake Manyara. It's unbelievable. And we stop into, if, you, if people want to, we stop into a, a local Maasai tribe. And I mean, it's really, really culturally uh, uh, rich, too. All right. And you'll give us the way for people to contact you if they're interested about that, right? Oh, that's easy. Yeah. Go to seanswarner.com. Sean, like Sean Connery, S E A N, and then Swannard with an S, but the Warner Brothers with an S, S W A R N E R. All right. And I'm, and I'm scared and interested to ask you this, but
1: what's your sort of dream destination for your next adventure?
0: <laughs> well, uh, I guess the next biggest adventure I, I, I recently got married. I've been, I've been told numerous times that it might be more difficult than climbing Everest. So yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll find out. But the next biggest one I want to do, um, is either going to be January, 2020. I think it's going to be January, 2020. I want to run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. How do you even do that logistically?
1: <laughs> um, how, like, well, you have to go backwards. I assume you have to go from, go
0: from east to west so that you're gaining time and not losing time, right? Exactly. So start off in Antarctica where time is, is, doesn't matter. From Antarctica to Johannesburg to Perth to Dubai to Madrid to Santiago to Miami.
1: And this has never been done before.
0: No, it has. It has. It's a "quote unquote" thing people are, are recently doing, but no, no cancer survivor. I don't think, and and no guy with one lung. It can't be a huge thing. <laughs> it's supposed to be no, it's, I mean, it's like, 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 like like one or two hands you can count the people <laughs> that have done this on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not not many people. I mean, there are you know, kind of tongue in cheek. There aren't that many fools out there. I don't think. Interesting. All right, I will be. I <laughs> will be watching for that. And la- last question for you: What's a
1: personal or professional mistake? that you have learned the most from?
0: Oh man. I would say the biggest mistake that I've ever made, and it's actually a physical mistake. And if that's not gonna fly then then I I, I can do something else. But I was walking back from training Uh, for Everest. And I had my ice axe in one hand. I was just flipping it around, playing with it, you know, getting cocky and tossing (laughs) it up and down. And I lost my footing walking back. I threw the ice axe to my right side uphill instead of downhill. And it got lodged in some rocks. And I fell right on my side, right onto the shaft of my ice axe. And it punctured my, uh, my skin. I still have a huge scar from it, but my ribs stopped it. If my ribs wouldn't have stopped, it would have gone right through and punctured my lung. Yeah, and you need that lung. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I need that one. So, what my lesson that I learned was, don't be a fool. Don't, don't play around with your ice axe in the mountains until you get home and you're sitting down. Or, you know, just be careful with, with the sharp tools that you have that are designed for climbing uh, high mountains. <laughs>
1: Well I've actually heard that more people are injured going down Everest than up because their guard is down. It's actually similar to what you're saying with the, when people's guard is down and they're kind of not paying as much attention, they're actually more more at risk. So maybe there's a secondary story in there as well.
0: Oh 100%. You're absolutely right. When people are so focused on the top, they they forget to uh, Get uh to remember that <laughs> Yeah, climbing is a round trip sport.
1: Absolutely. Well, Sean, thank you for taking the time to join us today. The fact that you're alive is a miracle alone. And the fact that you've completed all these expeditions is certainly a testament to the human spirit and just sheer perseverance. You're really an inspiration and model for so many. And I can't wait to see what you do next and and to join you one day on one of your trips.
0: I appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited to take you up Africa, man. It's, it's unbelievable and
1: life-changing. We will do it. So, Thank you again. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Elevate with Robert Glazer Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review under our new name. You can learn how to review us by following the link on the podcast page. Uh, We'll make sure to include links to Sean's website as well as his book and the incredible documentary um, that I mentioned before on the episode page and on our site, robertglazer.com. And until next time, keep elevating.
3: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media,